Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. This is, of course, the podcast where we speak to Bible scholars and theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome you all back to the retrospective series. As you may know, last year we did two episodes where we interviewed authors of books that had reached their 10th year of publication, those authors last time being Chris Keith and John Levinson. And those episodes went down very well with the audience. And so this year we'll be doing another couple of episodes like this. And today you'll get to hear the first conversation as myself and Professor Nijay Gupta of Northern Seminary reflect on the 40-year anniversary of one of the most influential papers in New Testament studies and the man behind it. So yes, we're thinking about the new perspective on Paul published in 1983 by Jimmy Dunn who was a professor and specialist in New Testament studies, who spent much of his career at the University of Durham and was a doctoral advisor for so many amazing scholars, the likes of Helen Bond, Scott McKnight, um, James McGrath, Simon Gallicol, so many uh, giants came from uh, under his supervision. Now, Jimmy sadly cannot be on the podcast to discuss this. He passed away a couple of years ago, but his legacy remains and he has had a profound influence on so many in the field, including Nijay, um, and he was thrilled at the opportunity to discuss the man and his work. And of course, this is work that has really changed how we look at first century Judaism and advanced a scholarly conversation that is still being richly explored to this day. Um, I put a link uh, to the paper in the description, which you can check out, as well as some links to Nijay's work, which very much carries on the the ideas of Jimmy Dunn. And I'm very grateful that he agreed to come on the podcast today to share his expertise and his thoughts. So we'll get on to the podcast episode now, and I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. All right, well, hello, Nijay. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thanks, Patrick. Sure. And it's uh, an exciting and uh, new thing we're doing today. We're, of course, going to be speaking about a rock star paper that was released in 1983 by the late Jimmy Dunn. And you are one of his disciples, for want of a better term. And so you're going to be um, giving us um, some some of your thoughts and um, just reflecting on Jimmy as a person and such. And uh, I think it's going to be a good beneficial beneficial one for the listeners of this podcast. But, um, you know, before we get on to that, um, I'm sure they'd like to get to know you a little bit personally. So are you up for some quick fire questions? Let's let's do it. Yeah, sure. So um, you are, of course, a graduate of the University of Durham in the UK. And this is one of the kind of the, the well-known institutions for biblical scholarship but um i'm curious to know what do you miss most and least about living in the uk yeah you know i've been i've been feeling nostalgic lately my son got a virtual reality system you know uh oculus and so we bought an app where you can um you know you can go to any location and walk around and the first thing i did was go to durham this was over over the Christmas break. And so just walking down the streets of Durham, you know, the Bailey and then the Palace Green and the Cathedral and Durham uh, Castle. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a, Patrick, I'm in a particularly nostalgic mood. So I miss quite a lot. I would say, you know, um, there are some things that I really love about the UK. For example, um, you know, just really thinking about families and communities, um, you know, uh, just taking good care, you know, the NHS taking good care of us. We had a, we had our second child when we were there. Um, obviously I miss just the wonderful um, academic environment at Durham. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, I'm kind of ready for a trip and a visit to go back and to see, um, to see the old sites, things I don't miss. I think the number one thing that came to mind is, is probably the food. Um, you know, just typically I think kind of more bland foods is more, was more common where we lived. And, you know, I had a, you know, I'm a big sauce person. And so like barbecue sauce is like one of my favorite things. And so I remember just really craving barbecue sauce when I was there. So that, that was one of the, you know, the, the bigger challenges. And I would say also customer service. I don't know, Patrick, if you've been in the United States, but we, we pride ourselves on, you know, 
trying to take good care of people. And that wasn't the vibe <laughs> that I got when I lived in England was customer service. And so I would say that that kind of sums up some of my experiences. Yeah, well, I've um, I worked in medical administration actually for a U.S. client for the past two years. So I'm aware of all the very strict protocols you have in place for for that and such. Um, so I definitely know what you mean. And it's also interesting because we had a, a scholar on the podcast. Um, I don't know if you heard of William Ross. He's done some work on the Septuagint. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I asked him um, the same question, you know, what do you what do you not miss about being in the UK? And he said the exact same thing, the customer service. So um, <laughs> I yeah. think that's um, that probably says something unfortunate. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, good that you have more positive things to say anyway about it over there. Um, and of course, the reason you're in the UK um, was uh, to pursue your career in biblical scholarship. And you've had had quite a bit of success there. Um, which I'm, which I'm sure you're, you're thankful for. It doesn't happen for, for some people, you know, um, but it has happened for you. So what, what was, so what was your plan B, if, um, if this field didn't work out? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, as reality strikes, you want to have a plan B, but I, I tried not to think about it too much. Um, only because I'm just not very good at very many things. <laughs> um, I mean. I am interested in pastoral ministry, and that would have been a natural um, secondary career. Um, the thing is, like, I'm an introvert, so I don't like being around people all that much, which is kind of a problem if you're a pastor. You're going to be dealing with people's problems and trying to interact with them. And so there's that. I think another option would be either in publishing or in library library studies, you know, library services. Um, I do love books. I love libraries. I love old books. I love print books. I love the smell of books. Um, I love archiving and historian kind of stuff. So that's an option. Um, I have a friend, this is getting us off topic, but I have a friend who's a, I don't know how to explain it, but he's like an urban archaeologist. And what that means, I don't know if you know what that means, but no. he explained it to me. But basically, if someone's going to like break new ground for a new building, and they want to make sure they're not going to damage any important things historically in the earth in any city. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, or if you feel like you have uncovered something, let, let's say it's a Native American, you know, whatever, uh, cemetery ground. or, yeah. you know, that could be important, you know, then you bring in. Anyway, so I really like that idea of like an urban archaeologist, you know, travel is easy. Um, often the government is paying for some of these things. And so you have funding. So those are some hmm. ideas. But publishing, I did work for a publisher for about a year before I did my PhD, really enjoyed it. So I could I could totally see myself getting into that. Yeah, I think that urban archaeologist might have even less job opportunities than your own field so um you know maybe that would have been another struggle but um yeah that's that that's that's fair enough just when it comes to like the topic of like ministry do you you yourself like do any sermons or preach any, any sundays or how does that work yeah i live in a you know a metro kind of urban area so i'm in a you know in a city with you know where I know a lot of pastors and and often they need someone to fill in when they're on vacation or when they're traveling and so I would say I preach, you know, probably once every couple months. Um, you know, the, the nice part is I, I know a lot of the Bible, especially the New Testament. So it doesn't take me 40 hours to prepare a sermon. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, weekends, I have three kids and they have lots of sports and activities. And so it's it's hard sometimes to put all the work in on the weekend when I have so much going on. So I do I do preach. I do like preaching, but um, I don't always get the, the time I want to do it. Sure. And of course, um, turning to Plan A, which um, thankfully worked out. You know, you've um, you've been in biblical scholarship, and um, you've spent much of your academic research on the uh, the Apostle Paul. And um, I'm curious to know what the first question is that you're going to ask him in in the eschaton. Paul, um, I mean, just being a little bit cheeky, I would say, um, why couldn't you make faith of Christ a little clearer? The whole you know, Pistis Christu debate. Yeah. Does that mean faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Christ? I think that's kind of funny because just one or two 
things that Paul could have said would have just clarified it for everybody. So there's a few things like that in Paul where he's just like, I really wish that you would have just given one clear explanation of that. Um, sure. That would be something that comes to mind. Yeah, the head coverings for me, probably. That's... And maybe baptism of the dead. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. No, there's um, there's probably about a hundred questions that could be a valid first question for him, but uh, we'll 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 get there someday anyway. Uh, one day closer. <laughs> um, so we'll um we'll move on to, of course, speaking about um the person this podcast is in relation to, and that is, of course, um, your, is it fair to call him a mentor? Of, of your, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. Your, your mentor, uh, Jimmy Dunn. And, um, you know, um, just, just reflecting on him a little bit, you know, he had a very successful career as a biblical scholar and a lot of very important work. And, um, you of course knew him, uh, personally as well. So I'd be, I'd be curious to know, um, what is your most memorable anecdote of, of this man, Jimmy Dunn? That's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I did get to spend time with him when I was in Durham. He had retired by the time I'd gotten there. But I, you know, I met him just through, you know, him being around for New Testament seminar. And I asked him, you know, pretty early on in my time there, you know, Professor Dunn, uh, you know, would you be willing to meet with me? And in exchange, I will do un, you know, unpaid research for you. And he said, don't worry about the research. Let's just meet at a coffee shop. He's like, buy me a latte and, you know, and, uh, or a cappuccino and we'll just talk. So, you know, every, every couple months, um, we would do that. There's not one particular anecdote. I think that stands out except um, he was just a really jovial person. Like he, he had a smile that is legendary and, and probably many of the pictures that are on Google of him, he's probably smiling. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing I remember, you know, a few things. That's one. Another one is he was almost inseparable from his wife, Mita. She was uh, just a really fiery friendly but very blunt honest um but also very loving uh person but whenever for anyone that was close to jimmy you always knew them as jimmy and mita i mean they were always together mm -hmm. and she would come to stuff and and one thing that he told me is for people that don't know the uk that well you drive everywhere right mm -hmm. uh, or you take public transport um but uh she would do all the driving so that he could mark papers. That was the thing I remember too. So she went with him everywhere mm -hmm. to all the conference, to a lot of the conferences and things. Um, so they were kind of inseparable. Um, and yeah, he, he just loved, uh, I'd say the third thing is he's really, he was really social. Mm -hmm. um, he was kind of a mover and shaker. He was instrumental in starting uh, the Society of New Testament Studies, I think the British New Testament Society as well. Um, collaboration, editing. I mean, one thing I've learned about people that are editors of books is they tend to be social because they're putting together kind of the cast in that mm -hmm. show. And so, you know, and, and Jimmy was one of those people. And, and you know, one thing that just stands out to me is... Um, he was a real mixture of very warm, you know, kind of consummate gentleman, very warm, but also in, you know, very incisive. I mean, some of his critiques can be just brutal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we'll get to the new perspective, but, you know, you kind of have this assumption that Ed Sanders, Tom Wright, and Jimmy, like, always think the same thing about everything. And that's just completely not true. Yeah. And Jimmy could be very, very critical of Tom um, and Jim and Ed. But 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 I, f I feel like he's probably m more critical towards Tom than he is towards Ed. Um, so it, it's yeah. I mean, to, to, to talk about New Testament studies in, in, in England and, you know, you must include Jimmy in the conversation. Yeah. That last point you meant about him being um, he could be very critical. That just rings home for me because I remember um he contributed to a Zondervan counterpoints, one of, yeah. one of the volumes, I think, on the role of works. In, yep. And um, I just remember reading one of his replies to one of the contributors. And I, I remember like, woof, he is roasting him. You know, it was <laughs> it was uh, it was terrifying in some ways, <laughs> you know, yeah. but um, 
but you know that's that's also the mark of a, of a good scholar isn't it just not being afraid of being critical you know when you need to be one of the things that fascinates me most about jimmy is that you know while he was very um he had some very unorthodox understandings of you know what the earliest christians believed so something things like adoptionist christology he would say that you can see that in the new testament and you know he was never less quite orthodox you know in his own theological commitments yeah and um i'm curious to know like how did he how did he navigate this this tension that's a really good question um i would say in the in america in, in the u.s um there is kind of more of a divided academy where you have kind of a more secular academy and you have a more confessional academy in the uk i feel like there's more of a kind of blend of things because you don't have a completely separated um christian academy in the same way that you do in the us where you have all these christian seminaries um, they are, tend to be embedded uh, into universities in the UK, just the, this, the system in England and Scotland in particular. Um, I would say for many of the professors that I interacted with in my time in England, um, they kind of uh, uh, compartmentalize. That's the word I was looking for. They kind of compartmentalize, and so their academic work didn't need necessarily to match up with what they said on Sunday, I, not, not that that not that I'm claiming that they were inconsistent, mm. but they didn't, f f you know, they weren't showing off their faith in their scholarship. And I think Jimmy probably was like that. Mm. Um, I think what what you just find in his work is just honesty. This is just the conclusion he's coming to, mm. and I'm sure that affected his faith, but. Um, you know, he was very active in lay preaching um, in his time at Durham as well. And so I, I don't know how to put it all together except to say that he wasn't the only person that I knew that um, had a, you know, an active faith and yet had what we consider, you know, untraditional views. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, those are those are untraditional views of what the earliest Christians believed more than their his untraditional views. He probably would have said, oh, I'm just saying what they believed. You know, I believe the yeah. traditional. Yeah. So um, you were, of course, you know, heavily influenced by by Jimmy's work. Um, but but you also have points where, where you part ways with him. And sure. um, I'm curious, as um, one of his um, dis disciples, and I know the Apostle Paul's turning in his grave every time we, we use that phrase, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, which of um, which of his many theses would you would you most strongly disagree with? I mean, I I have an early high Christology perspective in general, especially you know looking at Paul. Um, I'm kind of sad that that's what Jimmy's famous for for people who don't know the don't know kind of some of his bigger works on. Um, for example, like The Partings of the Ways, which I think is an excellent book, or his work on Paul in general, like Theology of Paul the Apostle, his commentaries, Romans, Galatians. He has, I think, a pastoral epistles commentary. I mean, he's done all kinds of stuff. Uh, his more, you know, the stuff he did right before he passed uh, were very pious kind of works. I think Jesus, according to the New Testament, but Anyway, that's not your question, but, you know, people often will, students now who are kind of going through, you know, theology training may only know that Jimmy's associated with New Perspective and this kind of issue of Christology. Um, and and he, there's so much more. So I encourage people to read his theology of Paul the Apostle, which is spectacular. But that that would be one is, you know, I, I, I think... I think the early high Christology is um, makes more sense to me, so I follow kind of Mike Bird and and Larry Hurtado and others in that. Um, other things, you know, I'm I'm one of these people where I don't have a lot of really hard and fast views, and so I just like to be influenced a little bit by this or that. 
if I had to get really picky, I would say a couple things come to mind. One is Jimmy did not like trends towards narrative readings of Paul. Um, you know, so I'm thinking of like um, Richard Hayes and Tom Wright, who who, who are more narratological in their approach to Paul. Yeah. And Jimmy did not like that, and I'm I'm kind of in between, so I'm not as as um against it as jimmy was um but neither am i for it um jimmy was really into uh wisdom christology and adam christology and i find that overdone uh overcooked uh if you will um so i'm not i'm not really into uh wisdom christology in the way that jimmy sometimes was I think that was kind of a generational thing that was really popular in the like seventies and eighties when he was doing a lot of writing. I would say the last thing, and this isn't about Jimmy, but um, you know, Jimmy had pretty traditional views, uh, traditional academic views, I should put it on um, pseudepigraphy. And so, you know, I, I take, you know, pretty much the whole Pauline corpus as Pauline in some way connected to Paul himself. Mm -hmm. And, and I think Jimmy's work on, you know, Colossians, Ephesians and uh, pastoral epistles are more within the kind of mainstream of the Academy, which is dis you know, disputed. Yeah. Disputed yeah. Lines. Yeah, sure. Um, just um, on something you were referring to there, the wisdom and Adam Christologies. Now, as someone who's not too familiar with them, would it be correct to say that an Adam Christology is basically um, looking at Christ in terms of, um, you know, um, he's a new Adam, that sort of thing? And... Yeah, and that's present in Paul, but, but you know, Dunn would take it to a level where it's kind of there even when it's unstated. Um, or it becomes kind of a, a foundational way of looking at Christology or maybe a primary way. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so you kind of go looking for Adam where he's not there. So, for example, the, the Philippian Christ hymn, should we be looking for echoes of Adam in, you know, the Christ hymn? And, you know, that was really popular mm -hmm. among some scholars in the late 20th century. And I just don't find the, kind of the hunt for Adam where he's not there to be uh, all that profitable sure and uh, wisdom uh, christology what would that be Is yeah that wisdom christology with... you know this comes from you know old testament and other jewish literature that that talks about wisdom and word as kind of uh, hypostasized uh attribute of god that almost becomes a being in, in and of itself and that this in some way inspired early christology and therefore, we should be looking for echoes of Lady Wisdom or uh, some kind of wisdom or word Christology throughout Paul, even in places where it's unstated. And again, if it's unstated, I'm not that interested mm -hmm. in it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now, we'll move on to speak a little bit about this paper that we are celebrating the, the 40th anniversary of, which is wild to think about. Um, this paper, The New Perspective on Paul, came out in 1983, and it was um, originally a set of lectures delivered in, in 1982, part of a series of lectures. And it's, um, yeah, it kind of uh, sent shockwaves through the, the academy mm. at the time, um, we could say. And so it's kind of useful to reflect on it. And so Jimmy was kind of, he's one of these central figures of the new perspective on Paul. And while this can be, you know, it can be a difficult school of thought for people to to understand. And I've heard that one of the easiest ways to unpack it is to think of it as a, a sort of a new perspective on Paul's opponents. Mm -hmm. um, so, so perhaps um, you could just explain and to the audience, you know, who were Paul's opponents according to, to Jimmy Dunn? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned this, you know, this 40th anniversary because um, that is significant. And I forgot that it was 1983 um, when he published that, you know, important paper, but it's important to know that, Jimmy was starting to put together patterns that were happening in scholarship in people like Ed Sanders and, and other conversations that were happening 
that wanted to revisit the Judaism of the first century, the Judaism of Paul's time. And so um, everybody had read Paul and Palestinian Judaism by, you know, E.P. Sanders um, in the 70s, late 70s, and the conversations were happening in the early 80s over the nature of Judaism. The old stereotype was Judaism was legalistic and, um, you know, focused on works righteousness, meritorious righteousness, and that that caricature was primarily derived from the New Testament versus looking at Jewish texts in their own right, like um, at that time, the more recently discovered Dead Sea Scrolls and some better translations and um, uh, accessibility to Josephus and Philo and Pseudepigrapha and things like that. So Sanders looked at Jewish texts in their own right and tried to ascertain what he called you know, a pattern, a pattern of Judaism to understand it. He came up with this little formula, covenantal nomism, meaning Judaism wasn't about earning God's favor, like, um, you know, like earning a grade for, for a class. Um, but rather there was this hybridity of the mercy and grace of God, uh, as we see in the Exodus and as we see throughout Israel's history, as well as an expectation and obligation to obey the law and all focused on the nature of a covenant as a bond. And Jimmy, uh, I haven't read the article in you know about 10 years, but uh, I think I know what it's, what it's about. What Jimmy was doing is he was basically saying, I agree with Ed about Judaism, but he feels like, I think he felt like, there were two parts to Ed's book. There was the Judaism part and there was the Paul part. And both Jimmy and Tom Wright felt like the Judaism part was good and the Paul part was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think Ed took that very well. But um, So uh, ultimately what Jimmy was doing is he was saying, we need now to take Ed's insights about Judaism and do a, a restudy of Galatians. So now to your question, uh, the old kind of Luther-oriented view of Galatians is Paul's opponents were trying to promote works, uh, you know, justification by works. Mm -hmm. And um, this is that caricature that Jimmy and Ed uh, were concerned about. So then the question is, if that's not true because Judaism was not focused on works, works righteousness, then who are these opponents and what were they so upset about? And, you know, it, it, I think now it seems almost silly that this wasn't the mainstream view at, at the time, because it is now, I think. But basically the opponents were, you know, according to Dunn, the opponents were really more concerned with how Gentiles enter the family of God or how Gentiles enter the covenant. So it was really a question about Gentiles that these opponents were concerned about and, and their attitude and orientation towards the Jewish law. And Jimmy, uh, his big contribution was to say, you know, there was the Maccabean crisis, you know, in, in the second century BC, where you had this Greco-Syrian tyrant Antiochus who hated Judaism, wanted to destroy it, and was trying to get Jews to um, apostatize, to turn against their own faith. And so some Jews did, but these you know, pious individuals, Judas Maccabeus and his family and others, were trying to retain you know, Jewish identity, Jewish fidelity, Jewish purity. And three uh, identity badges, Jimmy says, come to the fore as marks of commitment to Judaism. And they are circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath. And this is pretty clear in the Maccabean literature. First, second Maccabees, and then, then later, third and fourth Maccabees. And Jimmy says, when we look at Galatians, we actually see these particular things that are mentioned. You have food talked about in the Antioch incident. You have um, you know, festivals and Sabbath. That's I don't remember if it's talked about specifically in Galatians, but it's talked about in Colossians, it's talked about in Romans. 
And then you have especially circumcision. Um, that's kind of the climax of Galatians. You get to chapter five, you know, where he says, for freedom that Christ set you free, therefore. And then he says, you know, if you get circumcised, you'll be cut off from Christ. And so Jimmy is basically saying, the opponents were uh, actually not debating Paul on justification by faith. They were debating Paul on the means by which Gentiles are welcomed in the people of God. That's the mm -hmm. way I would put it. And, and they have to come through the gate of Torah, which expects circumcision, you know, adherence to food laws and Sabbath and so forth. And so the innovation in Paul's own argumentation is um, really welcoming Gentiles as true children of God through Jesus Christ alone. That alone part really is the big difference. So it was really uh, comes down to that issue of whether these Jewish identity badges, not works of, of moral righteousness, but these identity badges are what qualify these people to be accepted in the Messiah's family or not. Mm -hmm. That was a long explanation. Sorry. That was hugely helpful. So I thank you for that. And that's, of course, a one of the, the famous quotes from the paper is um, to be a Jew, to be a member of the covenant was to observe circumcision, food laws and Sabbath. And yeah. that's 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 the quote. And he, of course, observes Galatians through that through that lens to see what's going on. Now, does this does this understanding of Paul's opponents um, differ from that of Ed Sanders and N.T. Wright? Or is this one of the, the few points where they're all united, would you say? See, one of the problems, Patrick, is scholars are not always consistent and scholars actually aren't, they, they kind of aren't the same throughout their whole lifetime. I think Jimmy, so let me answer your question, then I'll give you my, my meandering statement. So to answer your question, I'm not sure about Ed. I don't remember what he says about Galatians. I think Tom, I think early Tom, <laughs> early Tom would, would read jimmy's galatians commentary and be fine with it i think he would he would give it a thumbs up i i think the biggest difference that i can see between the way tom reads galatians and jimmy is really on the focus on abraham whenever i hear the name tom Wright in a you know uh, when i think about paul i think abraham <laughs> <laughs> tom loves to to connect everything to abraham and tom tom has a tendency to try to boil things down to the simplest thing possible. Um, you know, one people of God, one God, one people of God, one future. You know, the, he likes these nice, simple formulations, which I don't have a problem with as just who he is, right? Jimmy did not like that. Jimmy doesn't like, didn't like to boil things down. He did like to summarize things, but to boil it down to something simple like that. So they had some differences. I think in the 1980s, I think they would have been they would have been on the same page about that. Ed, I have no idea. But let mm -hmm. me say, we're, you're going to want to talk about this later, but Jimmy has been accused of speaking out of both sides of his mouth and saying early on these badges were the focus and not Torah obedience in general, and then later on saying Torah obedience in general. Um, that, I think, is partially true, but it is, I think, the nature of academic inquiry because you have when, when you're pushing against some dominant idea you tend to just thrust sharply at one or two things so like you're trying to change a whole paradigm mm -hmm. and so you're gonna you're going to just beat one hammer really hard over and over again and that's what jimmy did i mean he just said badges identity badges identity badges identity badges circumcision circumcision and I think it's just part of this pendulum swinging. You swing to the other side, and then eventually it comes down to rest in some middle area. So I don't really, I don't really see it as Jimmy changing his mind or whatever. I think it's just the natural back and forth that happens with nuancing. I yeah. do remember now a funny story from Jimmy that might help in this particular conversation. So I had been doing work for my dissertation on Paul's use of cultic imagery, and I was interested in how a particular word, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the word is right now, but how a particular word is used as a metaphor. It's the word access, 
that's used in Romans, but I don't remember exactly what word it is. But, um, and I remember sitting down with Jimmy in a coffee shop and I said, you know, hey, in your Romans commentary, you take this view on this word, but in another book, you take the opposite view. And I'm like, which one is your actual view? And he's like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, like, and they might contradict themselves. And I, I'm sure I've done that before where I've defended a particular view in one. And then, and then some things I've changed my mind where I'm like, oh yeah. And then I learned this and now I don't think that anymore. So um, that's why it's hard to say this person lands here and this person lands there. Sure. And so you didn't just assume that it was the the older, the the newer book was the one that he held to at the time? You know, he wrote so much and and some of them probably came out around the same time and some of them go through new editions. So it's actually hard to tell which is the newest one. Oh, that's fair enough. Yeah, right enough. Um, you know, something like um, I'm wondering is, you know, we've been talking about this, this new perspective that he had, this new way of looking at Galatians. Like, why was this, um position kind of anxiety inducing for for certain theological traditions uh, would you say yes it was very anxiety producing i remember a big difference i think between the british academy and the, and the US american academy especially evangelical american academy is uh in the american academy people like me would be really troubled if a denomination denounced me <laughs> which hap hasn't happened to me, but it happens to people in the UK. I don't think it matters that much because these are university professors. They're not, they're not deeply affected. Their book sales might get hurt a bit, but they're not deeply affected by if a church says, you know, you know, we renounce you. Hmm. Jimmy did get some of those kinds of critiques. And I know that, that, you know, that, that probably caused some rifts with his relationship with certain church groups. Um, but why is it anxiety producing? I mean, it's upsetting what many people think is the heart of Christianity, which they would claim is justification by faith. Now, Jimmy said after he was critiqued on that back in the 80s and 90s, he said, I, I'm, I believe in the Reformation. You know what I mean? I'm a fan of the Reformation. Like he, you know, he said that. He just says it's not new to Galatians. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like justification by and and, and it, it's helpful to know that he was strongly influenced by the Methodist tradition. Um, he called himself like a lapsed Presbyter Scottish Presbyterian, but he aligned pretty well as kind of a Pentecostal, you know, Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. And Wesleyans in general are, uh, you know, have. I'm I'm Wesleyan, by the way. Uh, okay. Wesleyans in general um, didn't have a problem with the new perspective because the new perspective care puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that Christianity isn't just about believing; it's also about believing and being holy and doing, which is precisely what covenantal nomism is. And even though Ed Sanders didn't feel like the term covenantal nomism could apply to Pauline Christianity. Jimmy and Morna Hooker did think it did. They did think covenantal nomism was a good summation of the Christian dynamic. Um, Ed Sanders thought you know, participation was the dominant category, kind of mystical, you know, he had this famous question, what is real participation in Christ? Meaning we don't understand what Paul's talking about when he talks about in Christ. And Jimmy was very comfortable with covenantal nomism. So uh, why is anxiety producing? Um, it doesn't make faith alone the center uh, of, of Christianity or even the, inno the innovation of Christianity. Um, it, it is okay with works as a necessity of the Christian faith, which at least Jimmy's version, which is very anxiety producing uh, for many people, not for me, but for many people it is. Um, and, you know, I honestly, biblical scholars like Jimmy, like Tom, um, you know, we deal in the minutiae, we get into commentaries and verses, sometimes not caring about what the actual theological outcome is of what we decide is true in a particular verse or a particular text. And we leave that to systematic theologians to stress out about. So I think the biblical scholars, you know, were just like, this is what we think is going on historically. And, you know, 
the anxiety comes with pastors and, and theologians who just didn't like the implications of what was being said. Mm-hmm. Um, before we end, we'll, of course, talk about, you know, um, what, how a pastor should preach on Galatians through, through a Jimmy Dunn lens. But, um, you know, um, we've, of course, been it's a, this, of course, produced anxiety for some people. And um, one of the one they, of course, fought back in some ways, you know, to Jimmy's um, um, ideas and, you know, some critics from the reformed tr- tradition, especially, they've tried to maintain the the Paul's opponents were legalists' position, and they're they've done this by arguing that you know, well, insisting on circumcision, dietary regulations, and Sabbath to maintain relationship on God, you know, well, that is a form of legalism. Um, they they might say that. So, what do you, what do you make of this? You know, is that a fair criticism? Or? I mean, it def- depends on how you define legalism. Um. It is true that no set of opponents is going to define what, um, you know, the whole of common Judaism. And so uh, there is that. Secondly, we're reading through Paul to these opponents, right? So there might be exaggeration, hyperbole. Um, But no, I mean, you know, for example, in the book of Acts, Paul is being pressured into doing this vow at the temple and he agrees to do it is that legalism no it's negotiation you know? yeah. so you know i mean there's just things that you do for, you know P- paul has i'm gonna i always get the names wrong paul has titus not be circumcised but he has timothy circumcised i think i got that right uh is that legalism but then how is that if it's a contradiction so it depends on how you define legalism um i wouldn't i, I wouldn't validate the argument but there are scholars that have made the argument that surely some Jews were legalistic, and then the counter argument: surely some Christians were legalistic too. Right. So right. I mean, that's it's almost inevitable. The question really is, what's at the heart of that tradition, or maybe what's what's commonly taught in that tradition? Mm. And and something that occurred to me just as I was looking back over that question is, you know, insisting on circumcision, dietary regulations and Sabbath to main relationship with God. Well, I mean, that is in the old Testament. So I, I don't know if we want to say, you know, the old Testament is legalistic, you know, so um, that that's another factor, you know, I think something else that you have to factor in, like you don't want to end up, you know, calling old Testament, old Testament Israelites and Jews legalistic, you know, the faithful. Ones. Well, I mean, if you read, you know, I mean, Paul has lots of commands where he says, you must do this, or you must not do that. I mean, he actually says, if you become circumcised, then you'll be cut off from Christ. How is that not legalism? Because he's saying this one act is the difference between you being with Christ or not. But then you read, for example, um, you know, the Didache, which is this early Christian text, full of things that you should and shouldn't do as a Christian. Mm. Um, is it advice? Is it a command? Will you go to hell? I don't, you know... I think the legalism card gets overplayed when you, it's helpful to understand how ritually oriented ancient life was, especially ancient religion. Really only with Christianity do we start have, do we start to have a religious conception of it really primarily matters what's in your heart. (laughs) You know what I mean? Just like you're saying with the Old Testament, like, no, it's like, you must do this or you'll be cut off. You know, it's quite Mm -hmm. common in the Old Testament. It's not legalism. The question is, uh, is there forgiveness? Uh, you know, it, I mean, there's all sorts of questions that come into the play. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now, that's, of course, our reformed critics, um, but there's another class of critics, and they would be um, some critics from without, particularly Jewish critics um, in Pauline yes. studies. And um, just before I say the question, I think there's a relevant quote that I'd like to read out from this essay that we've been discussing, this uh, 1983 essay. And this is what Jimmy says. He says, So now that the time of fulfillment has come, the covenant should no longer be conceived in nationalistic or racial terms. Now, some some critic Jewish critics in Pauline studies have argued that the new perspective, including um, Jimmy's, that actually paints Judaism in a worse light um, than the old perspective. And they'd say, look, it replaces legalism as a problem with uh, xenophobia or some yeah. weird form of racism particularism yeah. yeah yeah um anecdotally i'll say like i can cope a little bit better at the table with legalists than uh, uh 
xenophobes <laughs> if you get me <laughs> you know they tend to be easier people to get along with um whatever that means but yeah what is your opinion on this uh <laughs> how much time do we have um i mean anytime you just slap a label like ethnocentrism or you know nationalism on on something like that um it's gonna sound really bad <laughs> yeah uh, i think the reality is jimmy was drawing from insights from you know lots of ancient resources that talked about jews being private um, Jews, you know, focusing a lot on in-group identity. I mean, when we talk about boundaries, you know, um, this is, yeah, this is really a question of boundaries uh, and, and how boundaries are conceived and reinforced. Um, there were lively conversations going on in the ancient world uh, in Jewish literature about who is in and who is out. I mean, the Qumran literature is a good example of that um you know i was just reading recently from the community rule it says you know you shall love the sons of light and hate the sons of darkness i mean this is an inside outside sort of thing mm -hmm. so i feel comfortable saying the new perspective focuses on boundaries and who's in and who's out um is this a worse portrayal of judaism uh no i don't think it is because there's been lots of studies, and not just from Jimmy, but others, on the fact that uh, Jews in the first century were not actually against outsiders, but they had protocols for how someone becomes an insider. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, are Christians, you know, xenophobic because we have initiation rituals? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we, we, we have our own, or an elder meeting, or, you know what I mean? Like, we... So um, I think when it's framed, if it were framed as racism or ethnocentrism, um, yeah, that sounds really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how Jimmy looked at it. I think it was a, a question of how someone transitions from being an official outsider to being an official insider. That's different to me than xenophobia because xenophobia is used today as hatred of other hmm. of outsiders hmm. and i and i don't think jimmy would validate that and say that he his his you know new perspective is treating jews as hate hateful towards outsiders but cautious about boundaried judaism yeah and i suppose ultimately it's just maybe a bit too simplistic to reframe it as oh you're just saying jews were Zenith. And that, and that, you know, yeah. um, you know, my my supervisor, one of my supervisors, I didn't, I didn't have Jimmy as a supervisor, but one of my supervisors, John Barclay, and actually in his early career or early maybe his PhD studies, he really liked the work of Sanders and Dunn, and I think he became critical because of this issue. One of the reasons because of this issue, and he actually wrote an essay on universalism and particularism and that challenge. I still side with the new perspective as the best historical explanation of what's going on. Um, but I recommend a book by Matt Thiessen called Paul and the Gentile Problem because uh, Matt actually opens up that question again of the many ways that Jews thought about how Gentiles engage with Jews and vice versa. And I think Jimmy... Jimmy wouldn't agree with the conclusions of the book, but he would agree with the earlier part of the book that there were many different ways and many attitudes within Judaism of how Gentiles interact with Jews. Some mm. of them being very open and gracious and some of them being more strict and closed. Sure. And uh, isn't uh, Eason, he would be more in the Paul within Judaism school yes. as well, wouldn't he? Yes. That's, that's kind of a, kind of a, um, well, I don't know how unique it is, but generally the scholars that are in that field tend to be Jewish themselves, in my experience, but he, yeah, my, my, I mean, it's a newer, it's a newer movement, but I think yeah. what, what you have is you have a cluster of Jewish scholars and then you have some sympathetic, you know, non-Jewish scholars, and then you have the students of those Jewish scholars and the students of those Jewish scholars are sometimes Jewish, sometimes not. And I think Matt kind of fits within the kind of disciple of Paula Fredrickson 
not directly, but kind of like me and Jimmy, kind of. That would be my understanding. I don't know Matt that well. Maybe he's Jewish, but I don't think he is. Oh, I I think he's Christian. I think I follow him on Twitter or something. So yeah, but um, anyway, we're coming towards the end of our time here. Um, but um, just a, just a couple more questions, just to reflect on reflect on this um, this work that Jimmy did, and um, you know, this is something we we mentioned earlier about you know um jimmy changing his mind on his understanding of works of the law later on in his career you know we, we've been discussing that initially he affirmed it as sort of these um boundary markers circumcision food laws sabbath that was what the problem was in the letter to the galatians and later he changed this to you know the problem was all that the law requires um so you know we've talked about that a little bit but assuming this is what happened like assuming that he did change his mind to all that the law requires, you know, would this require like dramatic revision to his reading of Galatians or do you think, um, does it, does it change much? Um, no, <laughs> I mean, if he had to go back and, and edit his Galatians commentary, he would just probably soften some of the language. I don't, you know, he stood by that, you know, his earlier work and his commentary, you know, throughout the years, his Romans commentary. Now, I know the Romans commentary posthumously is getting revised by another scholar who's a friend or student of Jimmy's. Um, so I'll be curious to see what gets changed in that. I don't know if we'll get kind of a side-by-side -side comparison, but I'd be curious. I doubt, just out of respect to Jimmy, much will be changed. But um, I, I would say this you know, going back to my statement before about kind of the natural evolution of scholarship. Um, I think Jimmy would look back on what he wrote in 1980s and he would say he didn't change his mind as much as the earlier statements lacked nuance. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the concessions, I would not say change his mind, but he gives some concessions in in the, his you know Erdman's book where he does kind of that big early kind of reflection i think what he would say is and he, you know uh, i think he would say um, i'm fine with saying it's all the law as long as you recognize these badges are still there yeah these identity badges are still there as long as that's there that's was his that was the big aha for him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i suppose he would say he could he could say yeah the law is there but these identity badges are the primary thing that's being discussed even though the the whole law is in the background i suppose it could be yeah for sure yeah. for sure you know so for example um you know and i don't know if this is a helpful example but you know my wife and i many years ago we went to the vatican you know and in, in order to go into the cathedral you have to be wearing proper attire so we were wearing t-shirt and shorts and that just wasn't going to fly so while you're waiting in this like 200 person line, 300 person line, they actually, I think they either give to you or sell to you like paper clothes that you actually put on to cover yourself. So you have to, you have to be dressed modestly to enter the cathedral. But the sentiment is respect for the cathedral and for God. So is the paper clothing a requirement or is a requirement the paper clothing and being respectful to the cathedral and god but you do have to have the paper clothing you know what i mean yeah like yeah. like the, the, obviously the heart of it is being respectful to god it's not about the paper clothing but you're not getting in <laughs> without the paper clothing and i think that's what jimmy's trying to say about circumcision like oh, of course of course it's about obedience whole law but you're not getting in without the circumcision. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's, of course, to emphasize, that's what Paul's opponents were saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It comes down to the phrase works of the law. And yeah. so generally speaking, I think, well, I don't know. that, that uh, I don't know how granular you want to go, but a really big deal in the 1970s, 80s, 90s was the translation of a Qumran text called 4QMMT. <laughs> I've heard Niksam about that. Asot HaTorah. And the fact that this is one of the only occasions where we see the phrase works of the law in a Jewish text at that time, mm. at the time that these texts were being discussed in the 80s and 90s. And, and so aligning that with Galatians was a big deal and being able to say this was about 
demonstrating yourself as Jewish? And how do you demonstrate yourself as Jewish? For example, the Shema, loving God, how do you demonstrate love for God? You know, just, just saying you love God? No. So, so there are some things you could do to make it clear to other people that you mm. care about the law and circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath became, in Jimmy's mind, what that was. So um, it, it's hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think um, one of the kind of, you can, when you're discussing what, what the works of the law are from a scholarly perspective, you can, you know, debate the minutiae of that Qumran text, or you can do like what someone like Matthew Thomas has done, where he actually looks at what it refers to in the second century, in the third century. Yeah. And I think that's probably actually a much better way of trying to parse the question, I would say, than just, you know, splitting hairs over one Jewish text found in a in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I don't it know. was really exciting when it was first found. Oh, but yeah. yes, I agree. It can't come down to one text. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you know, just getting um, theological and practical um, for, our, for our last question, um, which I've already referred to. If a, if a pastor were to preach on Galatians um, through a Jimmy Dunn lens, what would the biggest practical application likely be? Yeah, I get this kind of question a lot. And, and this is... Um, I have probably maybe a little disappointing of a response to it. I don't think the new perspective is a theological view on Paul as much as a corrective to misreadings of, of language that Paul uses. Why is that important? Because I think you can be an apocalyptic Pauline theologian and still subscribe to the new perspective. You could be a participation in Christ theologian and still subscribe the new perspective. To some degree, you can still be a traditional Protestant <laughs> theologian and subscribe the new perspective because it's really about what's going on behind Galatians and Romans. And if you can sign on to what Jimmy's saying, Jimmy still thinks that justification by faith is an important Christian doctrine. He still thinks the creeds are true. So let's. Okay, so having said that, mm. I think you could still preach a similar sermon that Douglas Moo or Thomas Schreiner would preach on Galatians. But Jimmy would just say, this actually isn't the reason behind Galatians. It's all the theological ideas are there in Galatians and Romans and, you know, Ephesians. But it's not the reason for the letter. The reason may be different. So, so actually, I think hearing Jimmy preach wouldn't be that different from hearing a traditional Protestant preach. You'll actually, what you'll sense less is new perspective and more is probably Wesleyan theology. Yeah. Um, but what I would encourage people to do if you're a preacher is read his Galatians commentary. You'll actually get a lot homiletically out of it that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with new perspective because most of the commentary is just commentary. Um, I would say as a Wesleyan type theologian, Jimmy's going to focus on love. He's going to focus on faith as commitment. I mean, some of these things are still going to come out in uh, in Galatians. I, 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 I'm not trying to do a bait and switch, but I'm actually coming out with two books on Galatians in the next couple of years. One is uh, a commentary in the Zondervan Story of God series, which is very preacher friendly. And in many ways, I'm the American evangelical version of Jimmy. <laughs> and so if you want to know, I think how he would preach it or, or how another generation of Jimmy's would preach it, I would encourage you to look at that. I'm also coming out with a volume, uh, a volume on Galatians in the new word biblical themes series, which are these little like hundred to 200 page book volumes that are going to lay out the themes. And I would say the themes that I come up with, I think would match pretty well what Jimmy would do, or at least close. And he would focus on themes like love, faith, freedom, um, and family. Those are my those are my four themes, and uh, I think he would probably, you'd probably, nod and smile. And if you he heard me talk about that, right, right, okay, and yeah, I I appreciate that you um that you point to, to your work because of course um that is kind of carrying on his his legacy in many respects. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an important legacy. So 
we will be sure to to check those out. Um, and of course, the thing is, Jimmy didn't leave any. Uh, well, he did do sermons apparently, but you can't find any of them online. <laughs> so, so you're probably the best bet we have to to hear. <laughs> but um, yeah. In in conclusion, yeah, it's it's been really um great to to speak to you, Nije, and just to hear all these um answers and just just to reflect a bit on uh, a scholar like a scholar as good as jimmy so appreciate it thank you it's it's been a fun walk down memory lane i will say i should have said this beginning like i don't speak for jimmy or his family so i may have said things that are you know incorrect uh, so this is kind of my take um but you know i am probably you know scott mcknight is my colleague and scott is a huge fan of jimmy's he was an actual student of his um, so I think, you know, there are a few people that are kind of the, um, you know, ongoing champions of, of Jimmy's legacy and, and Scott's one of them and I would consider myself one. So it's, it's been a privilege. Thanks.